Uh, so let's talk about Lamentations just for a second because it is a book that I don't spend very much time in, and my, I'm willing to guess that that's probably true for you. Uh, just real quick show of hands, anybody, Lamentations is your very favorite book of the Bible? Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, it, anybody never read Lamentations at all? Oh, a few, yeah, all right, a couple, all right. So we're headed into Lamentations. This is a brand new book. Lamentations is, um, let me just give you a little bit of a background. It is an Old Testament book. It's part of what we know as the major prophets. Um, and it is a collection, it's five chapters long, it's a collection of five separate pieces of poetry, all right? Each chapter is its own poem. So chapters don't necessarily build on the ones that come before. Each one's kind of self-contained and stands alone. Um, each chapter is beautifully, beautifully crafted, by the way. Um, each chapter is an acrostic poem, which is to say that in the Hebrew, the first letter of each line is the next letter of the alphabet. Um, all the way through all five poems, and in one of the poems, I think it repeats three or four times, the acrostic does. And, and so these are, these are not haphazard pieces of poetry. Somebody has sat down and they've taken the time to craft something very particular and very powerful because of the things that are going on in their lives. Um, there is, by the way, there's no narrative framework for Lamentations inside the book. In order to figure out what's going on in Lamentations, you need to read a little bit of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah is the narrative framework uh, that helps you understand Lamentations. In Jeremiah, we find the destruction of the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, its people are taken away into exile, the temple is destroyed and burned, and, and the people of God are in a strange and foreign land with very little hope. So that's the narrative framework uh, in the book of Jeremiah for Lamentations. For this reason, uh, many people kind of ascribe the authorship of Lamentations to Jeremiah, because the two books go together so very well. Um, there's really nothing in the book of Lamentations that says that. Um, it could be a different author, it could be five different authors, it could be Jeremiah, we just, we, we don't know. So I'm going to call the author of Lamentations the poet, uh, because they have crafted these beautiful pieces of poetry for us. And these poems really fall into the category of lament, which is a wonderful word that we really only use in rooms that have stained glass windows. And so when we talk about lament, we need to understand what we're talking about for the next five weeks as we go through this journey in Lent and these places where we lament. Uh, a lament is, it is a complaint, it is full of sorrow, but it is more than just that. So let me give you kind of an expanded, rather clunky definition of lament. A lament is an expression of sorrow or grief based on the recognition that things are not as they should be and directed at God in the hope that he can and will act, <clears throat> all right? So yes, there's a complaint, yes, there's sorrow, but it's more than that. It is this sorrow, it is this grief. I understand that the world is not as it should be, my life is not as it should be, other people's lives are not as they should be. Something has gone wrong and I have decided to take this to God because I believe that there's hope there of some kind, all right? 
So when we talk about lament, we're talking about taking our sorrow before the Lord. And that is what's happening in the book of Lamentations. With all of that said, let's jump into Lamentations chapter 1. Again, Mitch, thank you so much for reading that um, so that I didn't have to read the whole thing. Uh, it gets a little gets a little down. There we go. Um, but let's jump back in. Let's take a look at just verses 1 and 3 again real quick uh, to see this lament, this sorrow. The poet writes, How lonely sits the city that once was full of people, how like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations, she that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Uh, again, uh, from Jeremiah, we, we understand what the poet is talking about, that, that Jerusalem has been under siege by a foreign uh, um, enemy, in this case, the Babylonian people. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, at some point Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been conquered uh, more than 100 years earlier by the Assyrian people. And they've been taken away into exile. But Judah has kind of held fast. They've kind of held on uh, through some ups and downs. They've tried to stay close to God and, and have, have not been totally successful with that. In fact, at this point, they've failed pretty miserably. And, and so because of this, God says, I, um, you have to go into exile now. This is, this is what's going to happen. And that is what happened. Babylon comes in and over a series of um, invasions, uh, two or three invasions, they start taking waves of people out of the southern kingdom of, Ju of Judah, uh, out of Jerusalem. Finally, they take the king uh, away and all of the nobles and all of the priests and, and they destroy the temple. The temple is gone. We can no longer worship God in Jerusalem. And so um, this is a lament over the fall of the nation of Judah, over the nation of Israel, over the city of Jerusalem, and over the temple. Things have gotten really bad. In fact, they get so bad that by verse 12, we find these words. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow. Have you ever felt that? I have. I've absolutely felt that. I've absolutely been overcome by that emotion of sorrow, of grief, of pain, of shame, of anger. And in that moment, thought this is this is not just the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of all the things. There is no sorrow like my sorrow. This is a feeling I think that, that each of us wrestle with at some point. We run up across sorrow in some way, shape, or form, and it feels absolutely overwhelming to us. In the case of the poet, um, this sorrow comes from the fall of Jerusalem. Um, the city has been devastated. People have been taken away. They've been enslaved. The foreign nation has conquered them. That is a hard thing for me to relate to. I don't, I don't, that is not a personally relatable thing. I've seen things on the news. We've seen 
cities conquered, cities burning, people harassed, people displaced. We've seen those things in, in um, Afghanistan, in Gaza, and in the Ukraine. We've seen those things in, in the news. But they, they, they haven't, they don't always feel like they affect me personally. Like I grieve for that, then I kind of go on back to my own life, you know? But there are moments in my life where I do feel like, man, I am overcome with sorrow. And, and the poet of Lamentations actually gives us some things through the course of their poem in chapter one, some reasons, um, not just the fall of Jerusalem, but some other reasons why they are in sorrow. And some of these do resonate with me. So I, I just want to share some of these, these reasons, some of these sources of sorrow with you and, and, and see if they resonate with you at all. Verse 2. She has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Betrayal. Does that resonate with you? You ever felt that? Betrayed by the ones who are your friends? Verse 7, Jerusalem remembers all the precious things that were hers in the days of old. The good old days are gone, and they're not coming back. The thing that was no longer is. Does that resonate with you? Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a filthy thing. My sin, an awareness of my own sin, can bring on that that sorrow, that grief, does that resonate with you at all? Uh, verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. Hunger, need, a lack of resources. Wondering where your next meal is gonna come from, wondering how far your next paycheck is gonna go, does that resonate with you? Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. There's no comfort. No one is comforting me. Does that resonate with you? You have no one to comfort you. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you have felt completely alone in the midst of your sorrow. Verse 18, I have rebelled against God's word. That has been a source of sorrow for me. Perhaps it has been for you as well. I know the things that God has called me to, but like Jonah, I have run away. I'm aware of it. I rebel. Verse 20. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. <clears throat> death itself may be a source of sorrow for you. You have lost someone. You've lost someone you went to school with. You've lost someone in your family. You've lost someone that was your neighbor. You lost someone, that may be a source of grief for you. Do those resonate with you? Those resonate with me. When I come to Lamentations chapter one, it's not the fall of Jerusalem that causes me to mourn, it's these little things. As I say, I have felt that. I have felt those sorrows, sin, betrayal, hunger, poverty, broken relationships, loneliness, violence, death, those things fill me at times, from time to time in my life, from different points with sorrow. Whether it was the loss of my mother, whether it was the loss of grandparents, whether it was the betrayal of friends, 
whether it was the existential crisis of not knowing who I was supposed to be. I felt those sorrows, and, and maybe you have too. I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we probably all do feel that kind of sorrow from time to time, either in our lives or in the world around us. We come to the point where we say, is there any sorrow like this sorrow? This is too much for me to bear. This is as bad as I could possibly imagine and worse. What do we do when we get to that point? What do we do when that, that sorrow threatens to overwhelm us like it does with the poet in Lamentations chapter one? What happens when we come to the point where we cry out, there is no sorrow like my sorrow? Well, there are two things that I think that we often do, both of which are um, really ultimately bad ideas. The first thing that I think we do with our sorrow is we attempt to minimize it. We attempt to crush it down and kind of shove it into a box and then put it away. All right? Uh, we, we recognize that something has happened, but we also recognize, hey, there's other people in the world who are suffering more than I am. My thing really isn't all that important. A couple of weeks ago, um, a couple of uh, weekends ago, there was a shooting over on Claypool Avenue where DJ and Megan and Andrea live. Uh, one of their neighbors was shot in the leg. It's okay. Uh, but their street got locked down. There's a bullet hole in Megan DJ's house. Um, that's, that's a thing. That's sorrow. Just anger, grief. The world is not as it is. It just crashes on you. Monday night. That was Sunday. Monday night, I had a bad night. I can't really tell you why. I just know that I did. I was kind of, I was kind of overcome with just sadness, just melancholy, just I was not all right. The world was not all right. Just and I could not like my wife asked me like, what is going on? And I couldn't, I couldn't express that. I was just like, I don't know. I'm sad tonight. We go into staff meeting Tuesday morning. And as we do most staff meetings, we start with kind of like, hey, how's everybody doing today? How are we feeling? How are we coming into staff meeting? And Megan says, I have a bullet in my house. And I went, I'm going to take my sorrow, and I'm going to make it small, and I'm going to put it in a box, and I'm going to put it away, because I don't have a bullet in my house. And so it got around to me, and Jeremiah, how you doing? Fine. Have you ever said fine when you're not fine? <laughs> We've minimized our hurt. We've minimized our sorrow. Thankfully, uh, I decided, like, after saying fine, I was like, well, no, that's not true. And then I just kind of unpacked. I was like, I, I'm, I'm sad, and I can't tell you why. I don't have a bullet, but I'm still sad. And, and my team was kind enough to hold that sorrow as well as Meg's sorrow and say that they're both legitimate sorrows. Listen, we have a tendency to minimize our pain by saying it is nothing compared to somebody else's pain. God doesn't do that. God meets us where we each are in the midst of our own hurt, suffering, sorrow, and pain. And he does not say, would you please just get over it? The guy two doors down is worse than you. 
That doesn't happen anywhere in the Bible. Instead, Jesus just meets people in their sorrow and in their suffering. He's just with them there. And listen, when we minimize our sorrow and suffering, and when we put it away, when we feel that there's no sorrow like my sorrow, and then go, oh, wait, no, that's empirically, that's not true. I'm not going to complain about it. When we do that, we rob God of a chance to connect with us and meet us where we're at. Don't do that. I have to learn that lesson. We have to learn that lesson. We cannot minimize our hurt and our sorrow. The second thing that I think we do that is a problem is instead of minimizing it, we go the opposite direction. We maximize our sorrow. We wallow in our sorrow. We, we take that, like, there is no sorrow like my sorrow, and we just embrace it full on. There is no sorrow like this. Nobody has ever hurt the way I have hurt before. And we just, we just roll into that. And then we begin looking for things that we can add on to our sorrow. We begin looking for additional sorrows, additional griefs. Because we have to prove that there's no sorrow like our sorrow. <laughs> And we, we begin to wallow in it because at least when we're wallowing in grief, we feel something. Even if it's all that negative emotion. And so we just, we just begin to take on hurt. Real hurt. Our hurt, other people's hurt, imagined hurt. And we begin to maximize our sorrow. When Sarah, my wife, and I first got married, we were working together at a church, and a couple of years into that uh, marriage, the church let Sarah go um, from staff. It was a really unpleasant kind of thing. Um, it was very, very difficult. It resulted in my hand through one of the walls of my house. Um, it was a bad, bad day. And that bad day continued for almost three years because I decided, not knowing that I had decided it, but I had decided that everything from there on out was bad. And so I just kept adding to that sorrow throughout the remainder of 2018, and all of 2019, and all of 2020, until I can remember, I can remember in the middle of 2020, sitting in my car, my Jeep Grand Cherokee, in a Chipotle parking lot in Decatur, Illinois, of all places, just sobbing and punching the steering wheel. Well, my wife is sitting beside me going, he's lost his mind. And in my head, I'm saying to God, why don't you just end it now? Because I had maximized my sorrow. I wallowed without intending to, without even realizing I've done it. I've been wallowing in my sorrow, adding to it for almost three years. It wasn't until mid, early to mid 2021 that I began to realize that and work through that. So this, this, is, this is untenable. It's not sustainable to do this anymore. This is what we usually do, I think. This is what we're, we're prone to do, is one of these two things. Without even realizing it, most of the time, we either minimize our sorrow and hide it away, or we maximize our sorrow and wallow in it. And in either case, we've done the same thing. We have robbed God of the opportunity to meet us where we are at 
and deal with our sorrow. So instead of minimizing and instead of maximizing, that's what I want to suggest to us today. How should we deal with our sorrow? How should we deal with our sorrow? And one of the answers to that question is lament. Lament is an appropriate tool, an appropriate method. It's not the only method. There are other methods out there. Great counseling helps. But lament is a tool to help us deal with our sorrow. Lament helps us to recognize that things are not the way they should be. Things are not okay. And turn toward God in the hope that he can and will act in my life and the world around me in the cosmos that he has made. And so I must recognize my sorrow and I must take it before God in hope. That's lament. And that's essentially what happens right at the very end of the chapter. As things have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and there's no sorrow like my sorrow, at the very last second, the poet turns toward God. Up until now, the poet has been saying, this is all, God has brought this on me, and he has even said, God is right to bring this on me. That's a whole other thing we don't have time for today. But at the very end of the, of the poem, the poet turns toward God and says this. This is the end of verse 21 and verse 22. Bring on the day you have announced, and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. And that's how chapter 1 ends. Now, let me, let me just say that, that Calling God down's wrath on other people may not be the best solution to our sorrows, but at least we've turned toward God. <laughs> All right? At least we have begun to invite God into the situation. God, God can then do his work in us, right? God can move us off of that place of terrible hurt and vengeance, okay? But at least we have turned toward God and invited him into the situation. Look, the, the chapters of Lamentations, the laments of this book of poetry are not like some of the Psalms where they cry out and then they remember that God is good and everything's better by the end of the Psalm, all right? These are not sitcom Psalms here in Lamentations. They start bad, they tend to get worse, and they end that way for the most part. Except that often, somewhere in the thread of these laments, we have remembered to turn ourselves toward God. And this is monumentally important. Because when we move ourselves toward God, it places us and God in position to do something about our sorrow. We begin to open ourselves up to surrender to what God wants to do. And we have invited God in to move in ways that, that we were holding him at bay before. And so let me suggest to us today, as we are in this season of Lent, as we are recognizing the hardship of being mortal and being human, as we reflect on the truth that we come from dust and to dust we shall return, let me suggest that in those moments where our sorrow seems overwhelming, for whatever reason, 
Do not minimize it and hide it away. And do not wallow in it. Instead, at the very least, can we begin by taking it to God?